Maybe get uh, David to introduce himself. That's right. yeah. yeah, I'm David Aronovich. I'm a columnist with The Times newspaper. I'm David Aronovich, and I'm still a columnist with The Times newspaper. Um, David, you've described in, in a recent book uh, your family connections uh, with this. Perhaps you could just lay a little bit of that out. What's, what was the communist milieu in which you grew up? <laughs> okay. Uh, my father was a full-time worker for the Communist Party from the mid-40s till the late 60s. Um, so uh, for the first 10, 15 years of my life, um, and a member of the Communist Party had been since the since the thirties. My mother had been a member of the Communist Party since the end of the war, uh, as a teenager when she joined, partly because the Russians were our great allies, and she was in any case rebellious. Uh, and the milieu in which I was brought up was a Communist Party milieu, as communist as let's say a staunch Catholic is brought up in a Catholic milieu. You know, together with the rituals and observances um, and the community aspects of, of what that meant. What about the, well, the doctrine bits of it? What was the doctrine of a household like that? Well, I mean, one, of the things about, um, one of the things about growing up in a household which I suppose is relatively certain of its own beliefs is that actually you don't have to be doctrinal, um, oddly enough. I mean, because it's all around you. You know, the people who come into the house speak in a certain way, belong, you know, party branch members, uh, minors who have come down for Communist Party Congress to stay with you, uh, some of the families with whom uh, we mixed and so on. Um, and so it was not a matter of, you know, kind of sitting down for instruction um, at your father's feet or mother's feet while they tell you that this is the way the world is. It would be more a matter of picking up what you could from the books around you, from the sorts of films that you went to see. You know, we go and see Russian movies. So I saw Battleship Potemkin and the October Revolution when I was relatively young. And nobody would say to me, you know, this is what you must believe and this is the way it is. But they wouldn't have had any need to. The, uh, particularly for younger listeners, there might be a need to lay something very basic out. But what was... What did your parents want? What were they after? I think I think what they were I think what my parents wanted had probably undergone something of an evolution over the years, you know, so before I was born and so on. I think when my father first joined the Communist Party, he wanted Bolshevik revolution in Britain, pretty much. By the time we get into the 50s, they believe in the democratic British road to socialism, which essentially means that you keep uh, bourgeois democracy, as they would have called it, and so on, uh, and admitted the possibility that once you'd established your socialist nirvana, then it actually could be overtaken by democratic vote, which was quite a big concession on their part, certainly by the late 60s. And so, in the end, they'd kind of morphed into a left-wing, in, into, into something on the left of the Labour Party, uh, in effect. Um, but with this lingering though beginning to though lessening um love for and respect for the soviet union and what they called real existing socialism what was the bit of the soviet experiment that started to fall away well i i mean by the time i mean 
around about the time I was born, Khrushchev, it was about a year or so later, Khrushchev made his famous speech to the 20th Party Congress saying that everything that they had previously defended about the Soviet Union um, and had said had been bourgeois lies had actually, you know, all these things had been true and that Stalin actually had been pretty much the monster that he'd been depicted to be in the evil capitalist press. Um, and... Following that and then the Soviet invasion of Hungary, which the Communist Party supported, there was, I, I, I mean, I was you know, just a kid at the time, there was this kind of growing away and this belief that they had subordinated the interests of their own uh, movement for workers' emancipation and emancipation in Britain to a foreign power. But... Uh, so by 1968, when the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia, the British Communist Party was actually opposed to it, but opposed to it in a very particular way. For instance, it didn't call it an invasion because that would have upset too many other members of the Communist Party. It called it an intervention. Um, and these kind of linguistics are really kind of quite important. And although you uh, communists would say this is a bad thing, they would not equate it on the whole with dreadful things that the Americans and others were doing. It would be a somehow kind of slightly lesser, more... It was to be regretted rather than totally condemned. And, of course, the party was also split about it. So um, there would be people in the Communist Party who would have favoured supporting the Russians in uh, over Czechoslovakia. So it had undergone a kind of uh, a, a, a change. Uh, and although this means, seems incredibly arcane now, um, it's an important thing to me, there was this evolution to what we called Euro-communism, which was the belief that the Italian and Spanish communist parties in the 70s had kind of created a new and more democratic way of getting towards socialism and so on, uh, which ultimately meant that effectively there wasn't a need for a communist party at all. Going back to the pre-Khrushchev speech, um, what would the opinion of people like your parents been towards Stalin in that era? Well, my, my aunt told me when I interviewed her about the book, and my father was dead by then, that my father uh, cried when he heard about the death of Stalin. So my dad then would have been about 33, 34, um, and I never once saw him cry, ever. Never once. I don't know anybody who did. So I think we can take it that the death of Stalin was a kind of, you know, a big moment for him. And everything in the party literature of the time speaks to the total adulation that Communist Party members felt for Stalin. There's, uh, in, in my book, I quote something which was written by Palm Dutt, who was the editor of a Communist Party theoretical journal called Labour Monthly, um, which had nothing to do with Labour, um, but was monthly. And Palm Dutt had, done, had, had written this incredible editorial where he'd said um, that Marxism was scientific, but science required mastery. And mastery implied a master... And the great master of scientific socialism was, you guessed it, Stalin. Um, in other words, it was a kind of, you know, hop, skip, jump from the idea of this kind of mass movement of Marxism to the cult of the personality. Um, so they were firm. They would have been, during the 40s um, and early 50s, firm Stalinists. 
what would their reaction have been to the news that had come out for a long time by then about what was happening in Gulag? Um, it's an odd mixture, really, of denial. Um, it's not happening. Um, or the people who are being caught up in it are guilty and deserve it, and these their confessions in these show trials are, are true. A form of making excuses, well, if you were in that situation, you might make mistakes, but on the whole your intention was good and you're not as bad as X, Y and Z uh, um, on the capitalist side who do these things on purpose, whereas we're just a sort of unfortunate byproduct of our, of our situation. Um, but... If you were actually a party full-timer like my father was, then you were part of a collective that was involved in the business actually of selling this stuff to your own party members and to a limited extent to the British public. So to take an example, um, one of the people we knew quite well, a guy called James Klugman, who was uh, at Cambridge with the Cambridge Spies, um, uh, but was an out-communist, you know, in other words, his communism was well known, um, was sent by special operations executive into Yugoslavia during the Second World War, became in with the Tito's partisans, became a very important part of the liaison between the British government and Tito's partisans, who had a very big role in liberating their own country from, uh, from the Nazis. But when Stalin fell out with Tito in 1948... Um, and led to a whole series of show trials throughout Eastern Europe as they were brought into the um, much, much closer into the Stalinist uh, fold. He actually wrote a pamphlet called From, Tito to, From Trotsky to Tito, which described Tito as being essentially a Nazi imperialist American agent. This was a guy who'd known Tito, etc. And this was, we had a copy at home. I think I still got it. Um, and this was what was sold by Communist Party members and sold to, to other people and was the basis on which the, uh, uh, the Communist Party outlined its, uh, outlined its position on this. And this wasn't the only example by any means. So um, at the time of the doctor's plot, right at the end of Stalin's tenure, Stalin became convinced that there was a plot by Jewish doctors to off you know, some of the leading uh, cadres and, uh, and communists, and that this had something to do with the state of Israel, which they dis decided was a kind of Zionist entity after having actually supported its, uh, its setting up. And the British Communist Party, certain leading Communist Party members, were uh, recruited to argue this case. And then, extremely embarrassingly, right in the middle of all this, some doctors have been kind of imprisoned, a few had actually died from torture and so on. Stalin died, and almost as soon as Stalin died, the people who took over from Stalin said, no, this was a load of nonsense, it wasn't true. Um, and even so, so as soon as Stalin died, the kind of, if you like, the kind, it, it began to relax. But it was not really till 1956 that they, in any proper sense, recanted. Fitzroy MacLean claims a line by the Daily Telegraph correspondent. Malcolm Muggeridge also claims that the famous line in the show trial is, I believe everything apart from the facts. Yeah. Um, just jumping a bit, um, a poll that came out last year here in the UK showed that I think 49% of British 
you know, 16 to 24 year olds have never heard of Lenin. Um, only about 18% had heard of Pol Pot. Much less name recognition as you go down the various Eastern European leaders. Why do you think that so much of this is now disappearing into obscure history? Well, I mean, in a way, we always have a sort of generational problem in keeping anything but certain sort of total totemic things alive from one generation to another. Uh, I once did a programme for the BBC called Political on Political Forgetting, which is the fact that, you know, we get to the point where we simply don't remember what happened the last time we went through something like this. So we're fated, in a sense, to go through the same arguments or similar arguments, similar arguments again. Um, it is extraordinarily hard to paint to a younger generation what the Cold War existence was like. And, I, I, and by the way, this cuts both ways. So it would, for example, also cut for, let's say... Uh, US support for Panamanian dictators and so on, on the basis that they were a bulwark against communism. It would be hard now to explain to um, an 18-year-old the domino theory, um, as absolutely believed by significant American thinkers and strategists, you know, that if the one country went, then the other would. I mean, that seems slightly odd to us um, in a lot of ways, uh, 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 really. Um, so that's part of it. Um, but if I, if I interpret your direction correctly, uh, we come down to the question of why it is f that we tolerate a memory for Marxism and applied Marxism, you know, Hammers and Sickles and etc., um, even if we kind of forget that we would never give to Hitler. Although, incidentally, in Italy, they will give it to Mussolini, um, <laughs> as it happens. Che Guevara is on an Irish post office stamp this month, um, unlikely to see Reinhard Heydrich on it. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the, him, the Tappany Himmler. <laughs> no, it's, it's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> no, it's perfectly true. It's perfectly true that, by and large, communism is seen as a failed experiment in trying to do something good, whereas Nazism is seen as a failed experiment in trying to do something bad. Um, I think that's I think that's broadly it. Um, I mean, the old kind of adages, which were always kind of were always there, which was communism is all very well in theory, but it falls apart in practice, and so on, is the kind of I suppose it's sort of the underlying belief. You know, um, it would be a bit like kind of applied Christianity or something or, or something like that. Um, and you know, there are all kinds of forms of that. Um, uh, Lenin would have been okay if he'd not been superseded by Stalin. There's another kind of variant of it, which some people, um, surprising people, actually can believe. You know, the circumstances and vicissitudes of the construction of the Soviet Union gave rise to these distortions, whereas actually left happily to itself, who knows what would have happened, and so on and so on. Um, and yet, this is finally, the, um, it's recognised as a failed experiment, and yet there seem to be some people, some you could argue in prominent positions now, who seem to have the urge to give it one more go in some form. Um, we do have a you know, Labour Party leadership with people who've 
voiced admiration for Mao and what he managed to achieve in agricultural terms and and so on. And a lot of this is unthinkable if you know the history. And yet, it looks like some of it might go round again. Yeah, I mean, you will still find, you know, Edgar Snow's, I think it is, is that, I think the right author's Red Star Over China, published in, uh, uh, in Penguin with the account of the Long March and the early days of the of the Chinese Revolution. And it is also true that there is a certain kind of romanticism attached to aspects of communist history, which would never be permitted to be attached except by very select far, far right groups to to Nazi to, to Nazi history. I think that's true. I go back to the idea that it's got something to do with the fact that one intention was seen to be to try and create something you know, para, uh, like paradise for everybody and so on. Um, and that the other was essentially about getting rid of everybody you didn't like, even if they actually came down to uh, very similar sorts of propositions. Um, what flows from that, however, and the problem that kind of flows from that is the it's a very familiar one to our general, to my generation, but unfamiliar to the next generation, which is a which is how you should make a comparison or whether you should make a comparison. And then the other question about whether or not the disaster and the murder was actually inherent or not in the project right from the start, whether or not a belief in socialism in the form of a, as a, as a different political system, economic system, uh, requires the kind of control which in the end will tend it always towards uh, political control which seeks to obliterate opposition. Um, and, you know, that's a case that obviously that can, that can be made. So we take, we take Venezuela, for instance, the attempt to separate um, uh, Chavismo politically from economically. So at the moment you get this kind of picture, which is, yeah, you know, the real problem with old Chavez was not the socialism, it's not the control, etc. All these kind of stuff it was very good. The real problem was over reliance on the oil price. And <laughs> you get people like Naomi Klein who sits there with Jeremy Corbyn. I dare say Jeremy Corbyn believes this and so on. Now, does that mean that Jeremy Corbyn, if he came to power, would like to implement uh Chavismo is capable of implementing Chavismo. Well, I think there are one or two of his acolytes who might quite like to do that, um, if they possibly could. And I suppose you could argue that if they were to get into power and then discover just how difficult it was to do any things they wanted to do and were looking around for scapegoats, then in that case they might try to do some of these uh, some of these things. It does, however, seem more likely that they would simply fall apart. Um, but um, but Douglas, you're you are professionally more scared of what's going to happen than I am. So <laughs> you, may, you may differ. Thank you. Okay.